Well, shalom. I'm a little surprised here. Let's try it one more time. I have this feeling you can do it better. Let's try it again. Ready? Shalom! Shalom! That's a lot better. And you know what? I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, though I work for a nonprofit organization. So I know. Anyway. Anyway, my name is Rob Wertheim, and I'm the San Francisco branch director for Jews for Jesus. And this morning, I've come to share a special presentation with you called Christ in the Passover. Now, ask some Jewish boys or girls who the hero of Passover is, and after giving credit to the Lord, they'll certainly tell you Moses. And that's true. But that's not the whole truth. You see, if you ask some Jewish boys or girls who know the Messiah, that same question, then they'll tell you Jesus. Now, perhaps you're wondering, what's Jesus got to do with Passover? Passover is Jewish. Well, so was Jesus. And not only did he celebrate Passover every year while he dwelt among us on the earth, but I think he's clearly pictured in all of the symbols of Passover and in the story of Passover itself. For the message of Passover is a promise of redemption. And the story of Passover is the story of our liberation from bondage. So this morning, as I explain this traditional Passover setting, it's my hope that you'll see it as more than an explanation of a commemorative meal, but that you'll view it as I view it, as an object lesson of the life and mission of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now look closely, because I believe you'll see a picture of his death, his resurrection, and the promise of his return. And if you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like you to take it out right now and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, and I'll be reading from verse 7. That's the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. And we read in Luke 22, starting in verse 7. <clears throat> then came the day of unleavened bread upon which the Passover lamb must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And then reading down in verse 13, And so they went and found, as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. The first night of Passover begins a seven-day holiday called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And during this time, we eat nothing containing any leaven or yeast. Why no leaven? Well, throughout Scripture, leaven is frequently used as a symbol of sin. And in olden times, a small piece of leaven was used to ferment an entire portion of dough. It was the leaven that caused the dough to rise, to become puffed up, just as sin causes each one of us to become puffed up in our own eyes. So during this time, we know leaven is a way of saying that we want to break the daily sin cycle in our own lives. That's why in some Orthodox Jewish homes, for six weeks prior to Passover, the house undergoes a complete spring cleaning. We remove all of the cakes, the cookies, the bread, the cereal, the baking soda, anything containing any leaven in it. Now, this is usually the work of the woman of the house. But did you notice? Luke says that Jesus sent two men to prepare the Passover. Perhaps he sent two men, because in Judaism, it's a man who has standing before God. Not only when it comes to praying, but when it comes to ceremonial preparations as well. So if you think about it, that must mean the man should be doing the cleaning during these six weeks. Now, hold on just a second. There's got to be a loophole in here somewhere. 
Ah, I remember now. The rabbis have come up with a terrific solution to the problem. They explain. Now, true, the house is spotless because the woman has spent the last six weeks cleaning and removing every speck of leaven. Well, almost every speck, that is. You see, she's taken a few crumbs, and she's carefully hidden them somewhere in the house, and it's up to the man to find them. So the night before Passover, he returns home and takes up some rather strange-looking cleaning tools. They include a napkin, <clears throat> a wooden spoon, and a feather. And he goes on what we call Berikat Chametz, the search for the leaven. Now, where could those crumbs be? Anywhere. Up in the attic, down in the basement, behind the refrigerator, anywhere. But fortunately for the man, she's been good enough to hide them in the exact same place as the year before. <laughs> and the year before that, and the year before that. So finally, he discovers the crumbs, and with a very steady hand, he sweeps the crumbs into the spoon with the feather. Now, ladies, this is what I call heavy house cleaning. <clears throat> Since the crumbs were recent, and he isn't allowed to touch them. So instead, he wraps them in a napkin, and he takes them down to a large bonfire, burning the courtyard of the synagogue, where all the men of the congregation have gathered to throw the bundle of leaven into the flames. Then he returns home, where he proudly proclaims, Now I have purged my house of all leaven. But just to be certain, he adds, May all manner of leaven, which I have neither seen nor removed, be considered null and void and is the dust of the earth. Amen. The house has been cleansed. The home is now ready for the Passover celebration. Our ancestors were instructed to eat the Passover meal with their loins girded, with their sandals on their feet, and with their staves in their hands ready to go at a moment's notice. But today, today we relax and recline on pillows. You see, in Middle Eastern tradition, only the free could recline at dinner. Only the redeemed. And at Passover, the head of the house puts on special ceremonial garments. He'll wear a white robe called a kittle, because in Jewish tradition, white is the color of royalty. And Jewish men often cover their heads as a sign of respect before God. But tonight, instead of wearing the usual yarmulke or skullcap, he'll wear something a bit more elaborate. He'll wear a mitre. Royal robes and the symbol of a crown, because the head of Passover is a king. And as king, he guides his family through the traditional Passover Seder. Seder is a Hebrew word meaning order, because the Passover celebration follows a specific order of service. And that order is recorded here in this book, which is called An Haggadah, which means the telling. Well, I see everything's about ready. Oh, there's a customary greeting at Passover, which goes like this. Let all who are hungry come and eat. Don't get excited. I'm not going to serve you the traditional Passover meal. But the invitation stands. Come and join me. So we celebrate Passover together. <clears throat> Passover begins with the lighting of the candles. And this is usually the duty and honor of the woman of the house.
And after lighting the candles, she recites a traditional Hebrew prayer which goes like this. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher kiddushanu v'mitzvotav, v'tzivanu l'chadik ner, shel Pesach. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to light the Passover candles. It's very fitting that a woman kindles these lights, for it reminds me that the Messiah, the light of the world, will come not from the seed of man, but from the seed of woman by the will of God. For as the prophet Isaiah foretold, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, a light to light the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Passover isn't just a meal, but it's a banquet. And it's not just a service, but a ceremony. And while a meal and service might just take one or two hours, the Passover celebration might take up to four hours. And during this time, each adult will drink from his cup and refill it four times. <clears throat> the first cup is the Kiddush cup, or the cup of sanctification. Then comes the cup of plagues. And then the third cup, the cup of redemption. This cup is actually the focal point in the entire evening. And then comes the fourth cup, the cup of Hallel, or the cup of praise. But it's with the first cup, the cup of sanctification, that the host offers a blessing for all the rest of the service to follow. Holding his Kiddush cup aloft, he offers praise and thanks to God Almighty, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. Baruch Eloheinu melech ha'olam, The service has begun, and the youngest person present comes forward to ask the meaning of Passover. He or she recites the traditional four questions found in the Haggadah. They're chanted. And the first one goes like this. Which means, why is this night different from all other nights? And those of us who know the story of Passover are obligated to respond. This is because of what the Lord did for me when he brought me out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, when he redeemed me with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Redemption. It's a very heart of Passover. But Passover imparts not only God's message of redemption, it imparts God's means of redemption through the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. Our ancestors were instructed to take a spotless lamb, to roast it whole without breaking any of its bones, and to apply its blood to the doorposts of our homes. First to the top of the door, the lintel, and then to the two side posts. And because of our obedience to God's command, and because of our faith, in the effectiveness of his provision, we were spared the ravages of the tenth plague that befall the land of Egypt. For when the angel of death saw the blood on our doors, death was forced to pass over. That's where we get the name, Passover. And in Hebrew, Pesach, the holiday which commemorates a time when death passed over the houses of Israel because of the blood, the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, what a mighty act of redemption. But what a picture of an even greater redemption through the sacrifice of another Passover lamb, the Messiah Jesus. For just as none of the bones of those first Passover lambs were broke, so 
none of Jesus' bones were broken in his death. And just as our ancestors had to apply in faith the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their homes, so each one of us must apply the blood of the Messiah to the doorposts of our hearts. I don't think it was a coincidence that when the blood of the lamb dripped down from the top of the door, it formed the sign of a cross. And then the child asks another question. Why on this night do we eat only unleavened bread? And we explain. Our ancestors, in their haste to leave Egypt, had to take their bread with them while it was still flat. And one of the items found on the Passover table is this one called a matzotash. And inside it are three layers of unleavened bread, each one separated from the others by some cloth. The head of the house removes the middle layer. He recites a blessing and then breaks it in two. He sets one half aside while the other half he gives a special name to. It's called the afikomen. Now, I'd like you to all try saying that word with me together, okay? Are you ready? Afikomen. Very good. You all speak Greek. It's not a Hebrew word, by the way. It's a Greek word, which means that which comes later. So that's precisely what happens. The afikomen isn't eaten yet. It comes later. But for now, it's wrapped in a white cloth and hidden from view. Buried. No one else at the table knows where it's been hidden. But later on, someone will have to find it, or else the service cannot be concluded. And then the child asks two more questions. Why on this night do we only eat bitter herbs? And why do we dip the sop into the salt water? Well, let me explain by showing you this. This is a Seder plate. And despite its appearance, it's not used for deviled eggs. (laughs) A symbolic piece of food from the Passover service is placed into each one of these compartments, and all of these symbols are part of the picture of redemption. The first item is carpas, or greens, and we usually use parsley or lettuce. These greens represent life. But before we eat them, We're supposed to dip them into salt water, which represents the tears of life. So by dipping, we're reminded that a life without redemption is a life immersed in tears. And this is a chazaret. It's a root of a bitter herb, and we generally use an onion or a horseradish root. This symbol reminds us that the root of life is bitter, as it certainly was for our ancestors in Egypt. And this is moror, the bitter herb itself, freshly ground horseradish. Now, we're supposed to eat about a tablespoonful of horseradish. Any volunteers? Do you know what happens when you eat a tablespoonful of horseradish? You cry. (laughs) You have little choice in the matter. You know why? Because this is between the horseradish and your sinuses, and the horseradish always wins. (laughs) And like the chazareth, The moror reminds us of how bitter life is without redemption. We call this Jewish Tristan. And by way of contrast, we have a haroset, which represents the mortar which our ancestors used to make bricks for Pharaoh. It's made up of chopped apples, nuts, raisins, honey, and it tastes delicious. 
Now, perhaps you're wondering why such a sweet mixture is used to represent such bitter toil. Well, don't worry. Our rabbis explain that even the bitterest of labor is sweetened with a promise of redemption. <clears throat> and this is not an Easter egg. This is a Chagiga. The Chagiga was the name given to the special temple sacrifice in Jerusalem. We roast the egg and that turns it brown. The Chagiga is a token of grief to our people. Grief over the destruction of the second temple. And during the Seder, it's broken open, sliced, given to each one at the table, and then dipped into salt water, which represents what? It's right, tears. But it's not only a token of grief, because it's also a symbol of new life. <clears throat> and then the last item on the Seder plane, probably the strangest of all, is this one called the Zoroa. It's a shank bone of a lamb. Passover is also known as a feast of the Passover lamb, and yet a Passover lamb isn't eaten. You see, the lambs that used to be served at Passover were the Passover sacrifices. But in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, and so was the altar where those sacrifices were performed. So from that time to this day, no sacrifices are made, and so lamb isn't eaten at Passover. Now, the presence of these two elements, the egg and the shank bone, raises a very interesting question. With no temple, no altar, no sacrifice, how is it possible to atone for our sins? For the law of Moses states very clearly, I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood, by reason of the life, that makes atonement. <clears throat> well, some people, both Jewish and Gentile, might say, Perhaps that was important 2,000 years ago. That has no bearing on our lives today, does it? Doesn't it? If not, then why does the Haggadah instruct us to take the story of Passover personally? As though each one of us were being brought out of the land of Egypt. I think we're supposed to take the story of redemption personally because each one of us needs to be redeemed. But with no sacrifice, how is redemption possible? With no Lamb of God, how? Well, once, nearly 2,000 years ago, there lived a Jewish man by the name of Yohanan. You might know him better as John, John the Baptist. And one day, while he was baptizing people in the River Jordan, his gaze fell upon the form of another man, and he declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how. Not through the sacrifice of Passover lambs, but by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, the Lamb of God. It's now time for the second cup, the cup of plagues. And in Jewish tradition, a full cup represents complete joy. But in one sense, our joy is incomplete. At this point in the Seder, we would pour out some of the contents of this cup as we remember the plagues which were poured out upon the Egyptians. <clears throat> we mourn their loss and express sorrow over their destruction. There's an important lesson in this cup. Pharaoh defied the will of God. He was repeatedly told what God wanted him to do, but his heart was hardened, and he said, no, I refuse, I will not. And as a result, he brought death and destruction not only upon his land, but into his own home. His firstborn son died because of his hardness of heart. How often do we choose our desires over God's direction? How often do we know God's will for our lives? 
But how often do we say no? I refuse. I will not. Let me give you a little piece of Jewish wisdom. If God's telling you to do something, do it. The cup of plagues. But as I said, Passover is a night of rejoicing, a night of thanksgiving, and a night to praise God. And tonight I can praise God, not only because the angel of death passed over our ancestors' homes, and not only because the Lord redeemed us out of the land of Egypt, but because I've been redeemed from an even greater bondage through my faith in the Messiah of Israel, Messiah Jesus. It's through him that I've passed over from death to life. Now, at this point in the Seder, we're not done yet, but the table would be cleared off and we'd eat the traditional meal, which consisted of such things as matzo ball soup, gefilte fish, chopped liver. Now hold back your excitement. I can't stand all the drooling. I already said I'm not going to serve it to you. Sorry. But what I'd like to do right now is whet your appetite with some information about Jews for Jesus. Now, when you came in, you should have received a packet with this Christ in the Passover brochure. And if you take it out right now, and if you didn't get one, if you'd raise your hand, and maybe somebody can help me to get one to you. Did every family get one? Great. Well, if you open up this pamphlet, the last panel, you notice it's perforated. We're going to take part in an ancient Jews for Jesus tradition right now called the tearing of the card. So we're going to count to three. I'm going to count to three. And at three, we're going to tear it together, okay? Uh, uh, uh. <clears throat> at the count of... <clears throat> sorry, the count of three. One, two, three. Not bad. What I'd like you to do is look at the smaller form, the involvement section. It's our way of sending you our free newsletter. And I'm wondering if there's anybody here today that's actually even getting our newsletter. This is the first time that our ministry is here. Great. (coughs) Lots of speaking, I'm sorry. (coughs) Sorry. Um, There's a couple of reasons I want you to get our newsletter, okay? And you can fill this out while I speak. The first reason is I want to help you to be more effective in reaching Jewish people with the gospel. And I'm curious, how many of you know somebody who's Jewish? Oh, come on. I'm sure more than that, because you know what? I was in Seward last night, and almost every hand went up. Can you imagine in Seward that there are more Jewish people than here? But anyway, even if you didn't raise your hand, um, we have an old saying that goes like this. If you can witness to a Jewish person, you can witness to anybody. And so our newsletter will help you to do that. Um, But the other reason I'd like you to get it is because I'm selfish, and I want you to be praying for our ministry. And our newsletter shares what we do as full-time missionaries. One thing I do quite a bit of is I have gospel tracts called Broadsides. And if you look up, you'll see I have one in my hand. It's colorful, and it's fun to read the title to see what you think. So get ready for this. Beware of religious fanatics handing out pamphlets. At least I think it's funny. Um, Anyway, so we hand these out on downtown street corners, college campuses, anywhere we can be a visible sign to Jewish people that, yes, you can be Jewish and believe in Jesus. Also, I visit with Jewish people on a one-to-one basis to witness to them as well as to disciple and encourage Jewish believers. Um, Also, we have outreaches all around the world. We're an international ministry. 
In fact, I'm going to be heading out to Berlin, Germany in July to be a part of our outreach there for a couple of weeks. You didn't know this probably, but Germany has the largest Jewish population now since World War II. So a lot of Jewish people that we need to reach with the gospel there. But we have outreaches around the world in Israel. And we're going to show a, a brief video. It's only five minutes long. It's about our work in Israel, Behold Your God campaigns. And I actually was on this campaign. So see if you can find me. And then I'll be up right afterwards. even in Israel. It's one of our largest branches, actually, now. And so that's why we want you to get the newsletter again, so you can be praying for our outreaches in Berlin and Israel and San Francisco, for sure. Um, and then another way of being involved with us is a table set up for you over there, a resource table with free literature on one side of the table, some sample tracks and newsletters, other interesting and helpful things for you. And then on the other side of the table, there's a, a few not-so-free things, that we call them. Uh, we've got some Jewish gospel music uh, that are CDs. We've got various books on the Jewish holidays and how Jesus is seen in them, like Christ and the Passover, and this one, Daily Life in the Time of Jesus. And then we've got various DVDs as well, including this one that I want to highlight. It's called Survivor Stories. It's interviews with seven Jewish-believing Holocaust survivors, including my dad. He's on here as well. So I'll be over there at the very end to help you if you have any questions. And <clears throat> by the way, for turning in that slip today, and we'll turn that in right away, if, if you will, um, I want to send you a copy of my dad's testimony, I Escaped from Hitler Twice. I think you'll find this a fascinating story, and we'll mail that to you for turning in the slip tonight, today. So anyway, I don't know if there's that, or a few people that might be able to collect those, and if you need a few more minutes, I'd like to be able to share a little bit of, about how I came to faith, since uh, Pastor Larry had suggested that I do that. So, you know, you can fill out your form, turn it in either, you know, right away or at the end. Um, my story starts back in 1930s. Now, do I look that old? I'm not. Okay. But as I said, my, my parents are both from Germany. Um, they both escaped Hitler. Uh, my mom and her parents in 1936 came to the U.S., and my dad and his family in 1941, three years after Kristallnacht. In fact, he prides himself on saying that he was the last boy to have a bar mitzvah before Kristallnacht, before they destroyed the synagogues in 38. Anyway, fast forward, they moved to New York, they, my folks met, and then my older brother and I came along, and we were raised conservative Jewish, with Hebrew school educations and bar mitzvahs at the age of 13, and when my brother was in his early 20s, he moved from New York out to Los Angeles, where uh, he was, ended up being one of the first fruits of the work of Jews for Jesus in the L.A. branch back in 1974. And uh, we had heard that he was going to Bible studies back in, you know, we were back in New York. And so um, I had spring break from high school, so I decided to visit my brother. And he picked me up at the airport. My first question to him was, so, Steve, what's this about Bible studies? I thought you don't believe in God because he had been an atheist or an agnostic. And so he said, well, Rob, don't get mad at me. You're not going to believe this, but I believe the Messiah has come. <clears throat> so you know what my reaction was? He's Meshuggah. You know what Meshuggah means? Crazy. And uh, I said, oh, really, Steve? So who do you think the Messiah is? 
So you're not going to believe this either, but I believe it's Jesus. Well, when I heard that, my reaction was, you're a traitor. How could you do this to mom and dad after what they went through in Germany? Um, and Steve shared the gospel with me, and um, I saw some Messianic prophecies. Actually, it was Passover time. So I was invited to go to a Messianic Seder that was held by Jews for Jesus, very similar to what I'm doing actually today. And um, <clears throat> it was the first time I ever heard the gospel in 17 years that I was alive. And of all places, New York City, you think. Certainly there's somebody that would have told you about Jesus. Nope. Um, so anyway, I heard the gospel and I went back to New York. One of Steve's friends gave me a book to read, The Lake Great Planet Earth, written by uh, Hal Lindsey. It was like on the top 10 list in the mid-70s on Last Day's Prophecy. Long story short, I read it, couldn't put it down. I was praying, thinking about everything, looking at prophecies. A few months later, I came to faith. But in the meantime, um, my folks hadn't heard, heard from my brother. This is a little bit before I came to faith. He hadn't called in a while. And they like phone calls. If you're kids, call your parents once in a while if you're not living at home anymore. <clears throat> anyway, my brother called my folks, and we had three phone extensions in New York in the day. And uh, my brother sensed there was something wrong with my mom, because my mom, when she answered the phone, she decided to give him a little bit of Jewish guilt. So this is how it went. Hi, Mom. And she said, oh, hello. So he said, what's the matter, Mom? And she said, oh, nothing. She so said, come on, I know there's something wrong. Did Robbie tell you I believe in Jesus? And that's how they found out. Well, I found myself defending my brother, even though I wasn't a believer yet. And over the course of a few months, after sharing with them and a number of other things that happened, my parents and I came to faith, all in the space of a year's time. And uh, my wife is also a Jewish believer, but the only one in her family that came to faith. And she was 18, and she came to faith through a Lutheran friend of hers in high school who witnessed to her. And when her parents found out, they said, you either give this up or you move out. And she moved out and uh, moved in with friends. And then over the course of years, you know, things have gotten better, but she's the only one from the family that came to faith. So you have both extremes. So anyway, I wanted to share that. And again, if you have the form, if you can turn it in. If, do we have somebody that can collect those? Please, anybody? Yeah, and you know, if you didn't have a chance, you can turn it in later, but I like to collect them now if possible. Um, and this way we'll send you my dad's testimony too. Thanks. Thanks for your help. So now you should be full, okay? And so now we're going to continue. After the meal would come the third cup, the cup of redemption. And as I already said, this cup is a focal point of the entire service. But the ceremony cannot proceed just yet because something is still missing. Earlier, something was broken, buried, and now it needs to be brought back. Does anybody remember what it's called? It's a Greek word, remember? It's the afikomen. And all the children search for the afikomen, but only one will discover where it's been hidden. And once it's found, it's returned to the head of the house and then broken again. <clears throat> Each person receives a piece of the afikomen about the size of an olive. And this olive-sized piece is taken along with the third cup, the cup of redemption. Does this sound familiar? 
Well, it should, for this is the origin of our communion service. But not only that, consider this. Where else do we find a clearer picture of our Messiah Jesus than in this custom concerning the Afi Komen, which was broken, buried, and then brought back? Even the matzah, which is unleavened, a symbol of a sinless nature, speaks of Jesus. Our rabbis have set down very specific regulations concerning the appearance of matzah if it's to be found suitable for use. In the first place, it must be striped. Jesus was striped, and as the prophet Isaiah foretold, and with his stripes were healed. And then in the second place, it must be pierced. Maybe you can see the pierced marks. <clears throat> Jesus was pierced, and as the prophet Zechariah foretold, they shall look upon me whom they've pierced. But I can see our Messiah not only in the Afikomen, but in the Matzatash as well. Do you remember this pouch containing the three layers of unleavened bread from which the Afikomen is drawn? There's quite a bit of disagreement among our rabbis as to the meaning of this pouch, this mysterious three-in-one. Some teach that the Matzatash represents the three patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But why is the middle matzah broken, buried, and then brought back? And then there are others who say that the matzah represents the three divisions of worship in our ancient kingdom, the priests, the Levites, and the people of Israel. But why is the middle matzah broken, buried, and then brought back? And then there's still others who teach that the matzatash represents three crowns, the crown of learning, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of kingship. But why is the middle matzah broken, buried, and then brought back? It isn't known. And none of these explanations offers a satisfactory answer. But why search for explanations? Why not just accept the answers so clearly suggested in the very design of the matzatash itself? For there are three layers here, and yet they form a unity, a triunity, a trinity. And a Hebrew word for such a unity is the word echad. And it brings to my mind the words of God spoken through Moses, who declared, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But the word used for one here is the word echad, which may mean a unity. And so every year at Passover, the head of the house removes the middle layer of this unity, this echad. It's made visible while the other two remain hidden from our view. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he came unto his own, but his own received him not. But to as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. We Jews who know the Messiah know also that the unity of the Matzatash bears witness to the unity of one God revealed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Why is the middle matzah broken, buried, and then brought back? I think because Jesus was broken, buried, and then brought back. This is my body which is given for you and you and you and all of us. Do this in remembrance of me. And now it's time for the third cup, the cup of redemption. The fruit of the vine at Passover is usually read, our rabbis teach, 
to remind us of the precious blood of the first Passover lambs that were sacrificed in order to buy us back, to redeem us from slavery and bondage to Pharaoh. But in the same way, the blood of another Passover lamb, the Messiah Jesus, was sacrificed in order to buy us back, to redeem us from bondage and slavery to sin. And it was concerning this cup, the cup of redemption, the cup taken after the meal, that our Messiah Jesus said, this cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood, a very new covenant promised to us by God through the prophet Jeremiah when he declared, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, I will put my law within them, and upon their hearts will I write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. <clears throat> the broken piece of Afikomen and the cup of redemption are taken together in remembrance of the body and blood of the Passover lamb. My Passover lamb is Jesus. And then we come to the fourth cup, the cup of Hallel, or the cup of praise. Now, I know that many of you know a Hebrew word, but I wonder if you know that it's Hebrew. It's the word hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. But the first part of that word is the word Hallel, or praise. And this is the cup of Hallel, or the cup of praise. And we have much to praise the Lord for, don't we? And then there's one final cup I haven't mentioned. This is a cup from which no one drinks. This is the cup of Elijah. And in many homes at Passover, a complete place setting is left untouched, all for the prophet Elijah. Why? Why this longing for the prophet Elijah? Well, it's recorded by the Hebrew prophet Malachi that before the Messiah comes, he'd be preceded by the return of Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Hanavi. And so every year at Passover, a young child would go to the front door, open it wide, hoping the prophet will accept the invitation, come into the home, and announce the coming of the Messiah. I know that Eliyahu, Elijah has returned. For when Jesus spoke of the prophet John the Baptist, he said of him, if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah, who was to come. The prophet, the forerunner, has come, and so has the Messiah. Let's bow forward to prayer. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you that while we were still sinners, you sent Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, to die for us. Thank you, Lord, for your plan of salvation that you laid out throughout the scriptures, throughout the Feast of Israel, and in particular as we've looked at Passover and Unleavened Bread today, Lord. I pray that if there is anybody here today who has not yet trusted in you as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, that even today they might do that. If there are any who are not walking with you, Lord, but are know, know you, Lord, as their Savior, I pray that you would fill them afresh by your Holy Spirit and empower them to live lives pleasing and acceptable to you. Thank you so much again for this time, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. <clears throat>